Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to LSE, the Old Theater. My name is Bob Reitemeyer. I'm the chief executive of the Children's Society. The Children's Society is the national children's charity that commissioned this uh, report, A Good Childhood, Searching for Values in a Competitive Age. And we're here tonight uh, with two of the panel members uh, on the stage that are going to speak to you about the contents of the book. But I'm also pleased to see that we have at least one other panel member here with us tonight, Phil Professor Philip Graham, and we have the senior researcher uh, for the program, uh, Larissa Popel, as well. If there are other panel members and I don't see you, I do apologize. Um, but it was a, a, a unit, a, a group effort, putting this work together, 11 members of the panel, and, and Judy will speak to that in a minute. Um, but who we have here tonight, um, uh, Professor of Developmental Psychology at King's College London, Judy Dunn, who was the chair of the inquiry panel. And we have Lord uh, Professor Richard Layard, who is the, uh, leading the Wellbeing Center here at LSE, uh, so you know very well, and the principal author of the report. The cover says quite clearly it is a landmark report uh, for the Children's Society on childhood today. And I truly believe that is the case. Uh, it, of course, has received a lot of press attention these past two weeks, but here tonight what you're really wanting to hear from the authors uh, and the panel members is what it really says and why it says what it says. And so uh, I think that's the most important thing tonight, and it also provides you an opportunity to ask any questions that you would like. So the program this evening will be that Judy will speak uh, very soon, for about 20 minutes, and then Richard will speak for another 20 minutes, which will leave us as a group to have questions and answers for the better part of a half an hour, 40 minutes. Um, there are also, uh, the books are actually available here this evening, I believe out in the hallway, and Richard and Judy have very kindly said that they would uh, be very happy to sign any books that, uh, that you would wish them to, uh, and they'll stay in here uh, for anyone who wishes to take that opportunity. It's a very important time for children. We're in the midst of a recession, but over the years, we've actually been quite concerned about childhood. It's not that childhood is in crisis, it's that we can do better for our children of Britain today, and indeed the world over. And that is why we commissioned the report, because change is necessary. And I'm sure you're here to hear about what that change is and how we can all work together to improve childhood for all. So without further ado, Judy Dunn. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to start very quickly with skimming over the wonderful people who were on the panel and just to make the point that they cover a very wide range of skills and expertise in contact with children. Um, and, uh, and at the bottom is the Children's Society and Bob Reitemeyer, who were, of course, the main initiating force in this. Why, did, why was it timed for now? What, why is it so relevant? On the one hand, we have increasing anxiety about aspects of children's experiences today that may be different from what, what has happened in the last two or three decades. So there's, for instance, example, uh, anxiety about tests and exams. Children worry too much about them. They worry about exposure to violence in the streets, so parents won't let their kids go out on their own. 
And you're all familiar with that range of anxieties. On the other hand, there's also a lot of very good, systematic, and rigorous research which can begin to answer some of the questions we raise about, about those worries. So we have to do this balancing act of, do we take seriously the concerns and the worries? Um, what's the basis for them in what we know and what we don't know? Just to give an example of one of the um, worries, um, here's some data on 15 and 16-year-olds suffering from emotional difficulties, and you'll see that there's a steady rise, 74 to 86, and then to 99. In fact, it then flattens out, and there isn't a noticeable change, 99 to 2006. Um, but still, enough to worry about. The black bar is girls, and you'll see they're more worried than the boys. And here's the data from 15, 16-year-olds suffering from behavioral difficulties, and again, a big increase between 1974 and 1999. So that's all suggesting that there is something that we should be concerned about. The Good Childhood Inquiry, we framed the questions for each of the aspects of children's lives that we looked at. We asked what are the conditions for a good childhood, what are the obstacles to those conditions today, and then this rather complicated sentence which says, what changes could be made which on the basis of evidence would be likely to improve things? That's a real committee kind of a phrase, but you can see what it's getting at. So I should say that while the panel were chiefly occupied in very expert look at what's been gained by the scientific research, we had another great source of data, which was over 35,000 people sent us comments and reports. Some of these were professionals, a lot of them were professional organizations, uh, and some of them were children. And one of the things that characterizes the report is we've kept a close eye on what the children's views are on these particular things. So that, for instance, here are the themes of the structure of what we looked at. And those are the themes that the children drew our attention to. So when they were asked what was most important in their lives, families came out top, friends came out a very close second, and so on. So I'm going to very, very briefly skim some of the findings on the first three of these, family, friends, and lifestyle. And then Richard will take over with the value schooling, mental health, and inequalities. So family, here's a, a nice example from one of the children. What are the best things about your life? Love. Well, if you, if you buy, as I hope you do, and read the book, you'll see that this love message is what comes through very strongly in what we learned. I should also say that in writing the book, we were very eager to make it easy to read and accessible and short. So that means, of course, we, it's... We're skipping over a lot of very careful scientific research, but that is all referenced and summarized as well. But it's not a long book, as you'll see. But love comes through all the way through. What are the worst things about your life? Arguments. And that again comes up again, especially in thinking about the family. I'm just going to comment on two of the most marked social changes that we're all aware of 
over the last three decades. The first is Mothers Going to Work, which has increased hugely. And that, of course, raises questions about who's looking after the children when the mother's at work. It also raises issues of flexible working patterns for both mothers and fathers. And fathers in general, I think we need to spend some time thinking about because fathers are working too. And so all the issues about working that are being applied to mothers now are equally relevant for, for fathers. Then the, thir the third issue is family transitions. Parental separation is huge now. Uh, parental repartnering is also huge. Many mothers spend some periods of their time as single parents, and many fathers do too. So all these issues, of course, are of real concern. And we have learned a great deal from the careful research on these. So I'll just skim through some of those findings. On average, children are less likely to become depressed or aggressive the better their parents get on. And this is not about divorce or cohabiting or whatever. Across the board, that's the case. If their father has separated from their mother, the more they see him, the better their communication with him is, the better the children do. The second thing that's so <coughs> distressing is the figures on maternal depression and women who are living on their own are twice as likely to be depressed as women who have a partner. And women who have a step, whose partner is a stepfather to their children, are also more likely to be depressed. And so too are fathers. If a father is a stepfather, he's twice as likely to be depressed as if he's a biological father. So these are issues we have to think about because when you see statistics about single mothers doing X in a very punitive, blaming kind of a way, the second thought you should have is, well, what's her life like? And the life for very many single women looking after a family is that they're depressed. Then there are the issues of financial problems, which double when uh, parents have become lone parents. So it's not surprising that children are having difficulties too. Here's a child summing it up. Shout. What's the worst things about your life? And there's a great deal of evidence for conflict between parents being very difficult for children. No news to us there, but uh, certainly clear that even very young children are sensitive to conflict between the adults in the household. What are the best things in your life? Having my mum for a friend. Well, so where do we end up with our recommendations? The first is parenting, education, and support. There's a new interest now in programs for parents who are having difficulties. And we were lucky to have on our panel Stephen Scott, who is the, the kingpin of the parenting support research based in King's College. And I don't mean it to sound preachy, parenting education. The point is that parenting life is very hard for many people and then academics are now trying to work out what works in the way of provision of help beyond pointing out that uh, things are not easy. 
The second bullet is childcare, and this is in relation to working mothers, and this is a very old issue, and there's a huge amount of research. We really know what sort of childcare suits children best. That doesn't mean that that's the sort of childcare they get, and I think one of the issues here is that we really have to increase the support for childcare, and we really have to support the training of childcare people, because again, there's clear links between how much experience and training someone who's in childcare role has and how well everybody does. I have to skim through these. Flexible working for both parents, that's a really important one in real life for mothers and fathers who are trying to cope. And it's, own, it's rather resented in the world of business, but still, it has to be done. Access to help for parents is again something that in theory is available, but in practice I think there's, it's much harder for parents to get when they need it. Then we come to parents in conflict and access to psychological support. And this is one, again, where I think we really have to hugely expand the availability of help, psychological help and support. And the fourth bullet is children's voices must be heard. And that's particularly true for children in families where their parents are living in different households. They often have very practical suggestions about what would make their life better. For many of them, it's not the end of the world if they have a divided life moving between households, but they do want to be able to feel confident that they can say what makes it difficult if it does and that somebody will be listening. The second theme, uh, you can see why we looked at it, is friendship. And this came top of the list after family for children in terms of what made their life good. From the age of three or four, their friends are hugely important. And that means that some of their pleasures and joy and excitement comes from the, their life with their friends, but also some of their problems. So here's a little girl who drew a, a drawing of breaking friendship to me because it makes me feel sad. And her friends, who do look rather uh, on the warpath. And the other thing, of course, is bullying. Bullying, there are some very good programs, school-based programs for dealing with bullying, and they really work quite effectively. And we know about what makes one program better than another program. And all these issues are referenced in the, in the book. So if you want to check it out, that's easy to do. I wanted to just include one thing here about uh, one of the social changes that's been so marked. These are adults' replies when the first question is, at what age should children go out with friends unsupervised? And you'll see that only 3% suggest that it's okay for a child to go out with their friend if they're eight or under. Uh, and it creeps up, but not until 14 plus uh, is it getting near over 40%. But then look on the right, where the mothers and fathers are asking when they were able to go out unsupervised. And you'll see the difference in the figures. They're much, much greater. 
And this, I think, reflects the anxiety and worry about um, children's lives outside the family. And it also, uh, we, there are a number of recommendations we make in relation to that. And that brings me to the lifestyle of children today and how it has changed and how different it may be from the parents' lifestyle. More money, more leisure, and a revolution in communication, IT, access to media worlds, etc. And one of the issues that's hugely changed is consumerism. Those of you who have teenage children will know what this is about. Consumerism impacts through advertisements, celebrities as role models, excessive pursuit of wealth and beauty. Um, and the, there's some quite good studies here which show that the more materialistic children are, um, the more they're also having various problems. So exposure to the consumerism barrage leads to poorer relations with parents, poorer mental health, and I think this is particularly poignant because it comes through all the aspects of children's lives that we looked at, that the effects are more marked for poorer children, just as the effects of divorce are more marked for poorer children. Um, so too the consumerism problem is more marked. We are particularly concerned about the content of the media which children look at and the upward trend in exposure to violence, video games. There's some scary findings on links between video games and violence and children's own experience of violence. And these things may seem rather abstract, but when you think that children watch more than 17 hours of television a week and that scariest of all, 57% of children have been exposed to online pornography. And this is a reasonably good study. Um, I'm sure Philip can speak to this if people have questions on it, because he was the uh, lifestyle expert on our panel. So here's the child's view, children's view of this. What things do you think stop children having a good life? Smoking, drugs, lack of exercise, alcohol, they need to stop. So our recommendations, which are just, this is just to name them rather than to discuss them in any detail. We talk about banning certain sorts of advertising. We talk about educating children to have a critical attitude towards advertisements on the media. And then we discuss the variety of ways of dealing with alcohol abuse, raising price, putting more taxes on, and obesity, the importance of exercise. And there, of course, we cite the studies that have shown how many play, play areas around schools have been concreted over how much space children actually don't have now that they used to have. And that brings me to the issue of values, and um, Richard is going to take over. But I would stress all the way through this the theme of the poorest children doing worse. And I think that that's something we really ought to discuss, and the government has wonderful plans with great courage saying they're going to abolish child poverty and we really need to keep that up as a theme I think
Um, well, um, thank you very much, uh, Judy, for handing over in the nick of time. Um, I, I want to start by talking uh, about uh, values, um, because as you may have picked up, uh, one of the central themes of this report uh, is the danger of excessive individualism. Uh, one of the worst features of that, of course, is the cult of personal success in our society, uh, which is obviously completely counterproductive because there's only so much success to go round. So by this cult, we're encouraging people to engage in a zero-sum game, if you like, where the sum can't be improved, but a huge amount of energy uh, goes into the struggle uh, to get more uh, from the fixed total. And instead, what we want our children to acquire uh, are positive sum uh, attitudes and to engage in positive sum activities uh, which contribute to the benefit of other people uh, uh, as well as themselves. And we want them to learn uh, that one of the most satisfying things in life, in fact, is to be of use to other people so that uh, everyone gains uh, from uh, the, the effort which is devoted uh, to life. Th this, um, of course, is not the only source of satisfaction that children can get. Uh, and um, as this slide points out, uh, there are, of course, private goods which are very important to all of us, which we want to pursue um, and we get satisfaction from. Uh, but again, uh, it's important that children understand that the most satisfying uh, private goods are the ones that give intrinsic satisfaction rather than satisfaction through some extrinsic uh, payoff in terms of status uh, or position. So this is the kind of sets of values that we're wanting uh, to encourage in our children. And it, it, it would be, uh, I think, uh, quite a major revolution if we could uh, shift uh, the centre of gravity of the values of our society through the way in which we brought up our children. Now, just to show you what's happened to the centre of gravity of our society, uh, let me show you this. The, the, this is a question that's been regularly asked to, of adults. Um, do you think most people can be trusted? And as you can see, uh, 40 or more years ago, uh, more than half of people thought that most people could be trusted, uh, and, and now it's under a third. Um, I think this is a, a very profound and important change. The same change has happened uh, in the United States. It's a very pervasive influence uh, that is coming from individualism, that is making people see other people as a threat, a source of competition for status and wealth, uh, rather than uh, a, a support. Uh, and that's a revolution that we somehow have to reverse. Um, now, uh, our casting around for how to do this. Of course, our, our eyes lit on schools, which are the main instrument which we have uh, of an organized kind. I mean, we can preach to, uh, to parents, but we need some people to do the preaching. The great uh, army of preachers these days are the, uh, the 500,000 school teachers. Um, and uh, we, we devoted a lot of time uh, to discussing how schools could help to change the values um, acquired by our young people. Um, just to show you, um, that's not going to be easy, that we realise it, let me show you another of these. Uh, this is, <laughs> school is like a prison sentence, too long. 
and you may not be able to read at the top, but it says, school is not cool. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's a problem, of course, with schools um, as a vehicle of social change, but they're the most obvious central mechanism that we have. So uh, what, what can schools uh, do to help? Uh, and there are really two uh, features of schools which are really important. One is the general ethos in the school. Is it one where there is respect, an atmosphere of respect uh, between the teachers and other teachers, very important, between the teachers and children and vice versa, very important, and between each of those groups and the parents. Uh, and the more successful schools are the ones which uh, have a sign-up from children, teachers and parents to a rather explicit set of values. Some schools do this, more are doing it, um, but we argue that uh, all should have this kind of approach um, or something equivalent uh, in terms of uh, its results, uh, which of course means that they are putting the development of the character of young people as, as important an objective for the school as the development of their, their knowledge and, and skills, and we think that that is crucial. So the ethos is one way in which this can be done. Um, and essentially the whole teaching force have got to sign up to this. Um, but there's also, of course, uh, a period in, a, a, in the curriculum which is particularly devoted to life skills and we believe that can be much better used, particularly uh, in secondary schools uh, where uh, it's often assigned to whoever hasn't got uh, anything else in their timetable. Uh, PSHE, um, as it's rather unfortunately called, <laughs> uh, has now become a, a statutory feature of the national curriculum uh, last, uh, last autumn. So uh, it, 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 it really is an opportunity that we can seize. Uh, and the, the basic argument that we make uh, is that teaching these subjects, like understanding yourself, understanding other people, uh, sex and personal relationships with the, the other sex, um, your attitude to your career, all of these things are very difficult things to teach. Um, and, and the idea that they can be taught by just anybody um, is, is, of course, the fundamental uh, problem at the moment. Uh, there are programs, Judy was mentioning programs in some other areas, there are quite well-developed programs for teaching uh, most of these issues um, with an evidence base in terms of their impact uh, on the uh, attitudes and behaviour of children, uh, which could be uh, adopted as part of the training uh, given to the teachers who teach these subjects, uh, which they could then use with uh, their children. So we, we are arguing this should be a specialist subject in the training of secondary school teachers um, and they should, it should include uh, an ability to use programs such as the resiliency program is a program uh, which uh, some of us here have been involved in getting used in 22 schools in Britain. This is developed by Martin Seligman, uh, the father of positive psychology, former colleague of Judith. Uh, and um, it has been shown in random controlled trials to halve teenage depression over the subsequent three years and to improve behaviour uh, by almost as much. Um, these are the kinds of programmes that we're thinking should be uh, used where they exist and developed uh, where they don't exist as part of the training of 
a new group of teachers because um, most of the teachers in secondary schools have gone in there because they were interested in history or English or whatever it is. And we, we actually need some teachers who've gone in there because their primary interest is developing young people as people. Um, and I think that this could attract into our schools a, a, a new um, cadre uh, of people, largely psychology graduates, of which there are a very large number, in case you didn't know. Um, and many of them are very talented uh, and looking for an outlet uh, for their skills. I think these could help to be, as it were, the missionaries for a new values-based uh, atmosphere in our schools. Uh, I again want to stress that we don't uh, think this is easy, so uh, let me just give you the results <laughs> of two surveys of behaviour in schools, the survey of teachers and the survey of children, which are, are pretty disturbing, I think. Um, this is that in their daily experience, 47% uh, of teachers say they experience disruption in their classroom. And on a weekly basis, 9% witness violence between a child and a teacher, um, or by a child on a teacher. <laughs> um, and children's reports are, are pretty, pretty similar in terms of the, the disruption they experience and the uh, impediment which they experience to their learning from the behaviour uh, of other children. So uh, th this is an area which is not talked about enough. Uh, you're not meant to talk about it too much. Um, and it's something we have to face up to. And it can only really be changed by a fundamental change in values. It's not one that's going to be trained um, by the use of the stick. Uh, let me move on uh, to uh, two, two other features of schooling um, which we talked about in the report. Um, one was the excessive exam orientation of our educational system, uh, where the passing of tests um, and uh, GCSEs and A-levels uh, has taken over from uh, the pleasure of learning uh, and the development of the love of learning as a, as a major motivation for children uh, and for teachers. Uh, this, of course, comes from, in part, the school league tables feeding down through the head, onto the heads of the teachers, onto the heads of the children. Um, and I think there is now a, a pretty widespread opinion that the league tables have become dysfunctional and centrally sponsored ones that are basically generated uh, by a website uh, in the Department of Education uh, ought to be uh, abandoned, which doesn't mean abandoning tests. Uh, tests, of course, are very useful to um, help a child, the parent, and the teacher of the child to know how a child is getting on um, and to plan the child's education. So we're not at all against tests as uh, an internal instrument within the school for helping a child to uh, register their progress. Um, but we are against tests uh, that are externally uh, imposed and, uh, and are a mechanism that transmits, in many cases, fear into the system. Uh, we know that, of course, uh, school reports, uh, the annual report of a school must tell parents how well the, chi how well the children in the school are doing. Parents are entitled to know that of all the children as well as their own child. And prospective parents are entitled to know it, and the local authority needs to know it. Um, but it should be 
an instrument of individual choice and management. It shouldn't be a great national uh, uh, juicing match. Um, the, the other feature of the educational system, which Judy alluded to when she talked about inequality, one of the real dimensions of inequality in our society is the inequality of educational standards uh, across the schools uh, which our children go to. Uh, there is much more inequality between secondary schools than between primary schools. And it is very strongly related, of course, to uh, the income levels of the children. Uh, here is a shocking table. Now, what, what's happening in this table? Uh, we take all the secondary schools um, and we rank them according to the percentage of the children in the school who are on free school meals. So when it says the highest quarter here, it means the quarter of schools which have the, poor, the, the largest number of poor children. And then we look at the percentage of children um, who get uh, five good GCSEs in those schools, 28%, and then we go to the top quarter of, of schools uh, and we find uh, it's 67%. I mean, that is just an unacceptable gap. And one, one other figure which is comes out of the same set of statistics. If you take this bottom quarter, well, I should say, if you take the highest quarter on school meals, <laughs> uh, i.e. the poorest uh, quarter of schools, there is not one of them which achieves the national average performance in GCSE. I mean, that is a, a really, really, really shocking uh, statistic. Um, what can be done about this? Now, this issue has been discussed uh, for the last 50 years, as long as I can remember. It's been a, a, an issue. And actually, we had educational priority areas uh, in the late 50s and uh, sorry, late 60s and 70s, where there was some differential pay in favor of um, schools which had high proportion of children on free school meals. We absolutely have to go back to that. I mean, it's just intolerable. Uh, to have these differences uh, in results, which of course reflect the fact that the teacher turnover is much higher um, in schools in poorer areas uh, and the, 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 the general uh, assessed uh, quality of teaching uh, is also poorer. Uh, it should be the case that the teacher turnover is no higher in the poor areas than in the rich areas. And what we propose is that the uh, Pay, there should be a pay differential in favour of schools uh, where there is a high proportion of children on free school meals until the teacher turnover and other measures of teacher quality in those schools is no different from the national average. Uh, this is a very, very important proposal because we are a very unequal <coughs> society and uh, one first place at which to nip that in the bud is in the school system. Okay, l let me move on from that uh, to um, uh, income uh, inequality. Oh, with income inequality. Uh, as you know, we have a very large proportion of children living in poverty. Poverty defined here as uh, less than 60% of the median income. Uh, per head uh, in the family in which you live. So 
we have nearly a quarter of our children living in poverty defined as it's roughly speaking below half the average, the mean income per head. Um, USA is similar to us and of course many uh, European countries, especially uh, Nordic countries, uh, much much lower. Uh, is this, is this uh, inevitable? Well, oh, just look at this. <laughs> it, what, it, it used to be like that. It became like that um, in the 1980s. Um, and we absolutely have to reverse it. Now, uh, as you probably know, uh, the present government um, has committed itself to uh, abolishing child poverty, defined in that way, um, by 2020. Um, but I think you can see that uh, if you're starting from when the present government came in, which was 97, um, we're, not, we're, we're not on the line to zero at, at 2020. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we've got to get back on track. Obviously, it's obviously not easy to get back on track tomorrow, but we focus on uh, 2015 as when we ought to be down to the level um, of uh, Sweden. Uh, so we ought to, by uh, 2015, have got down to below 8% of, of uh, children uh, living in poverty. And that will require a, a major change. I mean, if you're thinking about what the budgetary priorities should be um, <coughs> in a period when we've got to protect uh, some of the uh, most uh, deprived people in our country in the recession that we're moving into, uh, this is the time to start moving on that. Um, now, the um, the the, the uh, what one of the arguments uh, which is sometimes uh, made uh, is that uh, if you um, have child poverty it's not so bad if there's a lot of uh, social mobility um, and, and some people even have liked to put it about that things are not so bad in Britain and America because although we have a lot of child poverty we also have a lot of social mobility that is just completely false so, so here's the uh, child poverty uh, rate um, uh, back in the early 1980s and here is, this, is the uh, uh, resulting um, uh, a, 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 a turnover um, of, of the population um, where being high up this axis, high up the vertical axis, uh, means that there's a very high correlation between the uh, income of the, uh, the child, the subsequent income of the child and the income of the parent of that same child. So this is sort of taking the cohort of people um, who were in their teens in the early 1980s and then seeing uh, how, how, how well they did as compared with their parents. And you'll see uh, that the countries in which uh, the child's income was most closely related to the parent's income 
uh, was the United States, which was also the one in which there was the greatest ch child poverty. So child poverty cannot be excused uh, by the view that it can be offset uh, by uh, intergenerational movement in income, because in fact you can see that it's highly correlated with intergenerational persistence of income. Finally, uh, let me come on to uh, mental health. This is one of the sad, sad, sad uh, things that came our way uh, in our uh, surveys of, of children. So sad. Um, Altogether, uh, if you use uh, the standard international uh, measures of mental illness among children in the uh, Child Psychiatric Morbidity Survey, very reputable survey, you will find that 10% of children are or would be diagnosed, this is a household survey, would be diagnosed if <laughs> they had, were looked at, all of them, uh, as having clinically significant uh, mental problems and of them only a quarter that's only two and a half percent of all children uh, actually get specialist care. I mean this is a disgrace uh, and uh, you can see that it's very unfair to uh, the young people themselves and it's also does society uh, no good either because if we if we look at um, people uh, who have had um, mental problems in their childhood, behavioural problems in their childhood, um, and then you see what happens to them later, you'll see that they're committing, in this case, ten times as many offences as the best, uh, best behaved uh, young children, um, uh, people did when they were young children. Uh, more drug dependency, more personality disorder, more suicide attempts, more teenage pregnancy, and so the cycle goes on, um, including welfare dependence. So we're all paying a cost, as well as the people, young people themselves, for untreated uh, mental illness in childhood. Uh, what, what, uh, what is on offer um, could be really uh, effective um, we now have quite a, a strong evidence base as to what works uh, for children. For example, for uh, children with behavioural problems under 10, something like two-thirds will improve as a result of uh, the parent training programmes that are now being organised. For uh, children suffering from phobic and other anxiety conditions, which is the other main problem children have, uh, you will find at least half of them improving through cognitive behavioural therapy. So uh, there are things which we can do, uh, and we should be doing it, um, but I showed you uh, how many are actually having access to that kind of, of help. Uh, so our proposal is to train more therapists in these effective treatments um, and uh, make a real impact uh, on the mental illness, which is a problem throughout, often a person's whole life by nipping it uh, early in the bud. So let me just summarise what I've said. I've said that in schools uh, we want them to be more values-based with specialist teaching 
uh, of life skills. Uh, we want to abolish the league tables and, and we want higher pay in uh, schools where, <coughs> where uh, teaching is difficult. We want to get the uh, poverty rate down to under 8% by 2015. Uh, we want to train uh, a thousand more child therapists. Hope to get that into the comprehensive spending review going on at the moment uh, and have them using nice guidelines. But above all, uh, I think our, our big picture aim is to help uh, turn the tide of excessive individualism. And I think what most of us hope is that if the report is remembered and discussed in 20 years' time, uh, it will be seen to have contributed to a turning of that tide so that not so many children um, are suffering from uh, the effects of excessive individualism, either in terms of um, family uh, breakup and conflict, uh, or excessive pressure in school, or indeed excessive pressure uh, to consume. So we're after, we really are after a major change in social attitudes, which could be summed up by guess what word? <laughs> Thank you. Richard and Judy. Um, now it's your turn, and so we have a couple of roving mics. Uh, if you wouldn't mind just uh, signaling that you'd like to ask a question and then uh, introducing yourself and asking a question, please. We may take two or three questions at a time. My name's, my name's Tom Crabb. I work in early years and childcare broadly. Um, there's and I very much welcome the debate that your report is introducing, and it's great to hear it from you live, as it were, so thank you for the opportunity to, to come along. I want to make two key challenges to what you're saying in the report. I'm interested in your reactions to this. Um, I understand completely the points about the multiple jeopardy that children who live in poverty face, and I was struck particularly as a child of that era of the steep curve, steep incline during the Thatcher years. Let's never forget the importance of those years in what we're dealing with, what we're dealing with now. But two things I'd like to challenge you on. Within the context of arguing for a good childhood, absolutely vital, really important, we're obviously framing what we think a bad childhood might be about. And I'm worried that some of the language in this little booklet here, promoting today, talks about um, broken homes, junk food, alcohol, and exam stress. I think we're risking saying what we think a bad childhood is, and that's a childhood lived by children in the 29% poorest families, potentially. My contention to you is that there are lots of other children living a bad childhood, and they are children who live in much more wealthy homes. They may have two working parents, and their contact with their, their parents is very poor. The things that children say they don't want happen a lot in many of those families, I would suggest. And I think we need to think really hard about what we're saying a bad childhood is and whom we are saying is living a bad childhood. I, live, uh, I lived in Hackney for many years. I, I now live out of London. And I see the behaviours and attitudes of children who go to school in a 4 by 4 car and the attitudes they bring from wealthy backgrounds. A lot of the things you're saying about values are very badly. Excessive individualism is a, is a malaise of many of these families, I would contend. So I think there are big issues that I'm not sure you're addressing in, in the report, really, about what a bad childhood might be. And I think we need to, I'd be interested in your responses on that. Uh, second point is around the importance of early years. 
Um, you've talked a lot about schools and about the kind of the, the, the priest-like qualities and so on. I, I think that's probably true. I would suggest to you that the experience of children under five is equally important, if not more important, um, and that um, the old phrase, give me a child at seven and I'll show you the man, I think is important. I think a lot of issues about values are shaped fundamentally um, between birth and five. Um, I think a lot of other issues you're touching on are shaped in birth and five. We know a lot about children's abilities and performance, in, that's not the right word, but quotes, and about how that over time the, the graph shifts and we know that more well-to-do families, children start to do better, but at two and three, children from poor families are doing equally well. So I think the challenge for policy is very much around, yes, schools, for sure, they have a part to play, but I think early years is also exceedingly important equally, if not, and I would say this, wouldn't I, more important than schooling, because I think a lot of the damage, or whatever you want to call it, may have been done by the age of seven and nine. You talk about behavior at seven and nine. Um, I suggest to you what we need to think about is how we're shaping behavior birth to five, and what the quality of early years experience might be, and what the quality of parenting might be uh, to, 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 to help with that. But um, I'd be interested in your responses to my comments. That's great. Thank you very much. We'll take the next question, and then we'll come back to those. Um, I've got a, a couple of questions which are totally unrelated. Sorry about that. Um, first of all, did you get much feedback about the importance of religion and environmental destruction from kids? And secondly, would I be right in hoping that one way that children's lives has got better recently is that they don't get run over as much by cars? discussed at great length, we went round and round in circles, um, and in the end I think we've tried to do both. We have a very brief section on, for instance, um, two particularly vulnerable groups of children, children looked after children and children in custody. Um, on the other hand, a lot of the book is about, we hope, a much broader sweep of most children. And um, I think we try to have our cake and eat it in terms of, of making what we say relevant for both or finding themes that are appropriate for both. Do you want to add to that? Yes. Um, we, we, we certainly um, devote a, a lot of attention to all children. But um, if you look at the chapters, um, it's only the last two chapters that are devoted to particular groups. Um, and um, that's partly because the surveys which we quote at the beginning and Judy quoted one of them um, show that uh, emotional problems and behavioural problems are quite serious in all social classes uh, and indeed one of the surveys the Scot famous Scottish survey shows that the deterioration um, in the mental health of young people has been greatest in middle class girls 
Um, so we're not, not at all going the way I think you were worried about. On the question of early years, of course the early years are important. Want to, uh, whether you call it schooling or not, is not, not so much of an issue. But what is really important um, about the, or big issue about the early years, which perhaps we only touched on in a rather general way, is the fact that in some countries, like Scandinavian countries, people who work with children in the early years uh, are all graduates, they're all highly trained. Um, and we do stress that one of the really big issues uh, which our society has to face up to is how important is childhood? Uh, and therefore, how, what should be the relative pay of people who de deal with children as opposed to other problems of society? And we're very, very firm that, that uh, we should improve on that. Absolutely, and uh, there's quite a lot about the early years in the book, in fact. Um, and the whole issue of childcare, which I just mentioned, is of course mostly about very young children. And um, we certainly take that very seriously. Uh, I think I'd worry a little bit about your assumptions that what happens in the first five years colours everything else that follows, because we know from quite a lot of research that children are very resilient and very adaptable, most children. Well, there was the, the next series of questions started off with, uh, because you said, Judy, in your introduction that uh, the way in which we framed the, uh, the inquiry was based on what children have told us. Mm -hmm. And is there anything you want to say about what children have told us about religion or about environmental issues? Well, I think, uh, to my surprise, there wasn't a great deal about environmental issues. I don't know if Larissa is still here, could you? No. Um, and there also wasn't a great deal about religion. Of course, there was some um, from different minority groups of, in particular talked about religion, but it wasn't, it wasn't as important or as prevalent as we'd expected. Uh, there was a, um, the Children's Society conducted a piece of research that involved 8,000 uh, 14 to 16 year olds, uh, which informed part of the, the structure of the inquiry and the chapter on values is actually the one chapter that stands out as not coming directly as strongly from children's voices as all the other um, themes and chapters did. Uh, they do talk about uh, what maybe, I can't put words in anybody else's mouth, maybe what I would call religion or I would call spirituality. They talk about it in different ways. Uh, they talk about the experience of feeling uplifted, of wonder, of music. Experiences that children feel important to their lives. They don't use the language of religion uh, or spirituality necessarily. And then um, the next question was uh, traffic accidents and the statistics um, which uh, still exist about the most dangerous um, uh, experience of children mm -hmm. today. Is there anything that you'd want to comment on? I don't know of any good research that's monitored changes over the last decade, which I think would be relevant. I did notice that they just recently um, tried to design a speed bump that generates energy. Um, so that may be a way in which to, uh, to uh, keep that speed bump uh, momentum going. 
Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Christian Kroll. I'm a PhD student here at LSE in the area of social capital and well-being. Um, but the first time I came to live in the UK was actually in order to work in a school, a primary school in kindergarten. Um, and I was raised in Germany, so I was familiar with that education system. And the first English term I've learned at that school was actually bullying. <laughs> and I wasn't familiar with the translation of that. And it, I think it's a very English phenomenon, uh, this word, with all the connotations that come with it. I was, uh, I was struggling a little to, to, to find a good um, translation to that with, uh, with the other European languages. But my point is, you've shown us some interesting statistics about excessive individualism. And um, Britain wasn't doing so well on a couple of indicators. My question would be, why do you think Britain isn't doing well in these, in these areas? And why is it um, hitting the UK so hard? I recall a different study that was made which asked teen which asked children, um, I think it was by the OECD, do you think your peers, your friends are helpful and kind? And the UK came last on that indicator as well. So I'm wondering if you have any sort of ideas why that is the case. Thank you. My name is uh, Mark Mullen. I'm a parent. Um, you, you don't. Uh, you, you talked about splits and uh, and, and single parent uh, homes, but you, you didn't um, mention live-in grandparents. Um, is there any data in changes over the period that you discuss um, in the number of in labor mo mobility and and, uh, and live-in grandparents, and what what consequences that may or, or may not have? Um. Uh, first, the bullying. In fact, there's some quite good comparison data for different European countries and for comparing Australia, New Zealand, and the US. And the bullying rates don't differ very much. Um, one of the key researchers on bullying in this country is actually German, and I've had discussions with him, and, and he agrees that it's not a particularly English thing. Um, that, that's an easy one to answer. Your other one about why are the children, I think the report you're thinking of is the UNICEF report where the children, came, the um, UK children came very low on friendship and caring and so on. And I actually talked to Jonathan Bradshaw about that. And he, to my astonishment, said, well, there were only three items that went into that scale. And you know, you shouldn't worry about it too much, which, which I did worry, worried me about the study in general. But uh, uh, we, we, were, we had intended to make more of that study. But there's been a repetition of the study, which has given very different results. So. Uh, with Britain more or less in the average, in the middle. Nobody understands it, including Jonathan Bradshaw. We don't know which one is right, but at the moment, <laughs> we have to suspend judgment on that point. Do you want to say anything about cyberbullying? Oh, yeah. Yes, and there's a new dreadful sort of bullying, which is termed cyberbullying. So it's by email and so on. And uh, it's very sinister, and um, that is a new aspect of bullying which has been monitored. I um, don't know that anyone's got any particular uh, programs for trying to deal with it yet. And then there was a question on uh, family structures and the role of grandparents. Oh, grandparents, yes. There's some very interesting data coming out of the Millennium Cohort, which are children born in the year 2000, so they're still quite little. Um, but it's a very carefully 
structured survey, which in particular over samples, various minority groups, where the grandparents are often co-resident with the children and the parents. And um, they often have a very large role in the care of the children when the uh, parents are at work. So it doesn't deal with the issue of geographical mobility, which you mentioned, but I think it, there is an increase in the amount of grandparent contact and care in those groups. Grandparents are hugely important in relation to the issue of the first early years. 44% of children whose mothers go to work in, when the babies are under one are looked after by grandparents. Um, unfortunately, the statistics are a bit disheartening, as I speak as a grandparent, um, because those tend to be the children who get into most trouble later on. But I think that's a, an example of how difficult it is to jump to causal conclusions. They're also the families that are um, most disadvantaged in a bunch of other ways, and I think that explains the connection rather than the fact that it was a grandmother. We have time for a couple more questions, if you'd like. We have one in the back. Hello there. My name's Jackie Parsons. I'm a, a mother and also a school governor of a secondary school. Um, I was, I, I'm afraid I haven't read the report yet, so I was very interested to hear the summary tonight. And I was um, interested in your obviously very deliberate choice of the title, A Good Childhood, rather than perhaps A Happy t Childhood, although clearly you do cover off um, mental health or emotional well-being quite a lot in, in your report. But certainly speaking as a middle-class mother myself, um, I could say that a large cause of the arguments between myself and my children are around junk food and television. I'm sure that they would say that if I just relax a little and let them watch a bit more TV and eat a bit more junk food, they'd certainly be a lot happier. And I just wondered if you had any insights to share from the research that you did with children into the causes of arguments between them and their parents that could shed any light on that. Hi, my name's Matthew Richmond, LSE alumnus. Um, I have a question and also um, a possible answer to it, so I want to run it by you. Um, it seems very difficult to build a consensus against marketing to children, um, which I, I, and I can't work out exactly why that is, if it's, if it's a lack of shared values or, or that at the moment the burden appears to be on those, um, on those who want to prevent um, marketing proving that something that it causes problems rather than the burden being on those who want to market um, and I, I, I mean this both in terms of direct marketing um, and also kind of the more more um, the general form of, of kind of lifestyle and celebrity culture um, I th it seems to me that the, the neoliberal kind of economic model that's been ascendant over the last 20 odd years assumes a, a kind of sovereign consumer who's able to make rational decisions and that's that assumption is very suspect um, you know for adults and it totally breaks down when it comes to children um, do you think that perhaps reconceptualizing um, some of the some of the, the the consumption of children which appears to be particularly harmful um, junk foods uh, you know, um, excessive use of computer games, these kind of things, that it would be helpful to reconceptualize it as addiction 
rather than uh, simply um, a service which is bought by a rational consumer. Um, and would this help to build a consensus around how you define the, the margins of what can and can't be marketed to children? Well, I will, I'll have a go. Um, the, actually, the term a good childhood was on the scene before I... Um, yes. Um, but I think it's a good choice because of the examples that you already used, that uh, someone who's having lots of drugs and things is often very happy. Um, uh, so we were eager to avoid a simple equation with happiness and take a more broad-based look. Um, since you've written a book on happiness, I think you should say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was going to, to come to the, the addiction question because um, I, 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 and we have some evidence um, of the, uh, the bad effects of these uh, behaviours. Um, in particular, there's a book by Ju Juliet Shaw, or two books, um, which seem to show that um, people who spend more time watching advertisements and so on, uh, children who spend more time watching advertisements are more prone to materialism and mental illness. Um, but I think more generally, uh, we, we would have to see that there's a, 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 a change in the climate of opinion um, away from the view that um, the uh, unrestricted uh, choices of individuals uh, lead to the outcome that is in their best interest. So you've got behavioural economics and uh, it's showing that people haven't the faintest idea what their preferences are between uh, saving 20% and 50% of their incomes. Um, but when you looked at their lifestyle, life experience ex post, you could say what would have been a sensible amount for them to have saved in order to have a reasonable level of happiness uh, during their lifetime. So uh, paternalism is back. Um, now there are people who want uh, libertarian paternalism and people who want less libertarian paternalism. Uh, you're, you're probably not uh, totally happy with libertarian paternalism, nor probably am I, because I don't think that the default idea is applicable in a whole range of areas, which is why we, for example, um, well, it's not that applicable to, for children in any case. Um, and we did, um, as I think Judy mentioned, uh, recommend uh, the, the banning of advertising at children under 12, as in, as in Sweden. So we, uh, we're on your side. Can I just, um, in response, I'd, I'd, if we can give the microphone to Philip Graham there, he can, he can respond as well to the, to both questions if he wishes, but certainly marketing. But can I just answer the question about good childhood? And the, the thinking behind that was um, was very much that a, a good childhood does not mean a childhood without conflict, without accidents, without risk, um, without problems, without arguments. Um, that is life. Um, and life brings all of that to us, and, and it's about how a good childhood actually helps children, but all of us uh, work with that and, and work through that and be resilient to certain challenges um, because um, childhood and life itself, personhood, um, is full of challenges. And indeed, 
there's a, a great joy in the ability to, to confront challenges and overcome them. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't equate a good childhood, which is completely and utterly happy at all times. We don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't ever picture that as realistic. A good childhood can be a childhood that is full of challenges and risks. Can I, can I just, just make another point on that philosophical point? Um, I mean, I was very happy with the title The Good Childhood because, it, it, I mean, childhood is, is, the, is the life of one child and I wouldn't have liked the idea of the happy childhood because that um, could be focused excessively on the happiness of the one child irrespective of how that child impinges on the happiness of other children. So uh, I think... Good is a, a good title, um, but um, I don't think it. To my mind, it was never in contradiction. And, but we, we don't we don't take a position on this in the report. But I don't think there's anything in the report which is in contradiction of the view um, that if all children had good childhoods, um, this would be the best thing that could happen for the happiness of children as a whole. Do you want me to say a, a word or two about... Uh, <laughs> Philip led the, uh, the inquiry panel's workings on That's the area okay. of lifestyle in the book. Just managed to get up from my seat. Um, well, first of all, we, we were obviously very concerned about the degree to which children were exposed uh, to commercial pressure from what we thought was a much too early an age. There's a lot of evidence suggesting that uh, children... Uh, are influenced by advertisements when they're three, four, five years old, when they don't really understand the persuasive intent uh, of the advertisement. And I think that uh, I feel confident that it would be a good idea if children were protected in this sort of way. I I'm a bit unhappy about the idea that children who uh, like buying a lot of things, uh, eating junk food and so on, are addicted because that sort of medicalizes the problem. I mean, I know I'm a doctor, uh, but I'm very worried about the degree to which uh, behavior of children of this sort is medicalized. What happens is uh, that uh, uh, parents and children are under enormous pressure from the markets. It's the markets that are addicted to making money uh, out of children and parents. Uh, much better to see it that way than to think in terms of the children uh, being addicted. And then when uh, Jackie Parsons here finds herself under pressure from her child uh, to buy things that she feels uh, are, are inappropriate, uh, she's in a very unfortunate uh, position. Now we have made a few, if I can just divert for a little bit, uh, we did, uh, she obviously, you perhaps I should say, uh, are uh, obviously capable of saying no to children and we were worried about the degree to which parents were become, finding it very difficult to say no to children and we characterised the good parent, though there are many sorts of good parent, as the parent who is both extremely loving uh, and, is, and is able to draw sensible boundaries and say no when that's necessary. Not say no too much, but say no uh, when it's really necessary. And the only final point I'd like to make in response to one or two remarks that have been made, particularly I think the first, pointing to uh, the problems that occur in children of 
wealthy families, and that is this, there was enormous diversity. There is enormous diversity. There are single parents bringing up their children extremely well, a great deal better uh, than some, uh, some families where there are two parents. Uh, there are rich parents uh, who do an extremely good job, and there are rich parents who do a lousy job, I'm afraid. And one just has to accept that, that there are inadequacies in parents. Uh, we all think we do our best for children. My guess is we showed, Richard, I think, showed the slide of the children who felt terribly unloved uh, and whose parents quarreled all the time. I would put a certain amount of money on betting that if you ask those parents whether they love their children, they'd say they love them to bits. Uh, it's the way children perceive what is going on uh, that is so important. But we mustn't forget that there is enormous diversity here. The literature shows very clearly that it's poor children who show more behavior problems, more difficulties of various sorts uh, than children in affluent families. That doesn't mean to say that there aren't large numbers of children in affluent families uh, who aren't in trouble. So I'm sorry, I've gone on for far too long. But, uh, <laughs> there you go. See one hand come out. Two, three. Well, let's take let's take those, and then we'll maybe call it an evening because I know that uh, you've been uh, extremely patient with us, and we have um, books outside that you may want to uh, to look at. So, can you raise your hands again, please? Hello. There's only one microphone, so grab it if it's near you. I've got one here, actually. Oh, sorry. Where am I looking? Yeah. Sorry, um, apologies. Sorry, Shane Norton. Um, I was just interested um, because a lot of the things we talked about have been negative progress, and I wonder if you've actually have findings of really good progress, things we should be pleased about. Okay, good. Can we take the questions back here too? Hi, sorry. Um, I'm asking about the relationship between children in the modern society and sexual relationship in terms of we're a more sexual society, sex is a bit more open-minded. How does children at a younger age deal with such a thing and then what effect does that have on its on their lifestyle how does that affect them mentally because I think that there's a huge change between now and maybe 20 years ago so okay, thank take, you take one more whoever's strongest with the microphone um, hi I'm a, I'm a primary school teacher and um, I've taught uh, primary and secondary in three different countries and um, I'm now in a very progressive state uh, private school, um, so I have a lot of different ex experiences, and I'm, I'm just a little bit concerned about um, putting more pressure on schools to, to fix the problem, because it, schools don't exist in a vacuum, and I'm, I'm incredibly concerned about the role schools play in, com in communities, and I think there's, there, there are enough smart people who can do PR and marketing to actually market schools to communities. Um, I feel like there's got to be a shift, a, a much bigger shift than just teaching really good PSHE um, in primary and secondary schools. And the other thing is uh, just to say that paying more is, is a, a, in deprived areas, and I've worked in very deprived schools, is fine, but I, I, don't have, I haven't met any money-grubbing teachers in deprived areas. So I think if you want, I mean, paying more is definitely going to be a good incentive, but to give those uh, teachers maybe an, an extra inset day where they get to do professional development, one, maybe one day a half term, would be a, an affordable and very um, valuable thing to those teachers to keep them there. Thanks very much. Can I just ask an associated question, although you said, my question was that, that you didn't seem to allude to health promoting schools 
and, and the evidence on health promoting schools and how effective they are at, uh, in terms of child behavior and feeling about the school being a nice school and, and the whole ambiance of the school, uh, which is actually one of the policies that this government is trying to implement. Uh, and I'd just like your comments on why you didn't feel health promoting schools uh, wasn't uh, worth emphasizing. Should we start with uh, the, what, what's positive in childhood today? Well, every time we look at comments made by the children, there were always some wonderful positive comments. So the overall impression you get um, is that children are doing fantastically well. In, in Kathy Silver's She Was Our Education um, person, 80% of the children in the primary schools she talked about, the primary schools, I think that's relevant, uh, enjoyed school, were happy there, and so on. So, you know, I think we, we can get um, very overburdened with the negative side of things. And, of course, the, those are the worrying aspects. Um, but the, the quotations from the children were just wonderful. Um, so that's not a... Uh, something we systematically go into, partly because we were worrying about the children for whom life was not going very well. Um, I also think that many of the programs, I mean, I was so skeptical of parenting programs 10 years ago, and now I'm really struck by how well they seem to work when they're well designed and people are, I mean, the, the parenting, in, what's it called, the Parenting Academy, I think it's called, National Parenting Academy, and uh, it's doing a terrific job. So I think in that case, um, there's real hope. And I think there's also real hope in some of the intervention programs for very young children who are potentially heading down a pathway that's going to end in uh, mental problems. The other thing that uh, is, I think, extremely moving, and I didn't have time to talk about it because I was strictly keeping to my 20 minutes, is children's friendships are so wonderful in so many ways, and we know that friendship between young children can buffer them against all sorts of stresses, stresses within their families, stresses like going to a new school, stresses like being bullied. Uh, friendship is a huge plus. And it's, it was lovely to document that so completely. And there are some sequelae about how we should actually value friendship. It's also the route by which children begin to understand why people behave the way they do, what makes them upset, how you can comfort them. So all the aspects of considerateness and caring for other people, friendship's a really important route to it. And it's a really important route to the values that we're talking about too. I wanted to write, read out the table we've got here, which is so interesting. This is the first experience of teenage sex in Britain and Holland uh, by boys. Percentage saying main reason was love and commitment to relationship. Holland, 56%. Britain, 14%. Uh, well, that's the main, that's the main, main difference. 
Um, I, I think it, I think it is very interesting that um, there is um, uh, a, a, a much greater seriousness attaching to sex in Holland, at any rate, uh, sexual relationships in Holland, which is, is quite certainly connected with the fact that there's, there's more sex education in schools. And the, the rate of teenage pregnancy as a result of sex education in schools in Holland is, I think, one-fifth what it is in Britain. So um, there's something not very satisfactory about um, the uh, attitudes to sex um, at that particular point in people's uh, young people's lives, uh, certainly boys in Britain. I, I don't know if you want to add to, add to that. Um, but um, yeah, I'm happy to comment on um, the, the other uh, things that have been said, which were interesting. I mean, on mental health promotion, um, we talked about a lot about PSHE. That's H stands for health. Uh, we talked quite a lot about preventive mental health. Um, I mean, there are some other dimensions, but you could hardly say we ignored uh, health promotion, I think, a, as an issue in schools. In fact, we had um, we have about 10 pages on uh, alcohol, drugs, uh, smoking, uh, and um, I can't think what the fourth one is. There's a fourth bad thing. Sex, maybe. <laughs> no, not sex. Drugs, alcohol, smoking... <laughs> anyway, anyway, we had we had a lot of pages on it. Um, on, on the question of what's good, I mean, I I do think that one of the really striking changes in young people is that they are much more tolerant, uh, much more tolerant of variation, um, diversity, and in general, more tolerant of uh, of of bad behaviour. Quite honestly, which has its good points and its bad points, but that is a, a huge change. Um, that, that, that's come over young people and of course because of modern technology they have a lot more fun of all kinds um, than used to be possible now whether that's displaced fun of, of a different kind which people had from simpler things uh, is an issue but obviously they, uh, they have a, a great deal of, of fun um, including the, the ability to spend a lot more money but, but it, I think the the issue of friendship is important. I mean, Judy said, of course, the, how very important friends are and how much support and joy people uh, of all ages, including young children, get out of their friends. But one of the really worrying statistics which we quote is that the number of children who, who report themselves as having a best friend um, has fallen quite sharply. Um, and I think that this is in line with these ge this, gen this general evidence of decline of trust um, in our society. The European Social Survey, which came out uh, just the other day, uh, showed that uh, when young people are asked, um, this is 16 to 25, um, do you think most other people can be trusted? Um, the percentage saying yes is lower than in any European country, including Bulgaria and Romania. I mean, there's something bothersome about the relations uh, between young people, which we uh, we shouldn't underestimate and I think it's, pr it's probably the reason the Children's Society decided to have this uh, an inquiry. So um, I think it's a, it's, it's a very complicated, mixed, nuanced picture. We're certainly not, not uh, in our report uh, trying to 
paint a picture of some catastrophe as some writers have done like Oliver James. We wouldn't at all agree with that characterization of our society. But as Judy said earlier, the main point is that we could do a lot better. And just to, there was a final question about um, paying teachers to work in the more socially deprived areas. Um, it is a good idea, but it may not be enough. And, and, and I think the incentive is a very good suggestion. The book does talk about actually increasing the status of the profession uh, as, as a, a primary concern. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about the burdens on teachers and how everything that we were suggesting was going to make that burden worse. It was a real, uh, a real issue for us. But I think if you read the book, you'll find we come out just right. Well, that's a seamless way for me to take this opportunity um, to, first of all, thank all of you for coming tonight. We really appreciate it, your interest in the, in the subject uh, and for coming this evening. Um, and the books are outside, if you wish. Uh, Judy and Richard are here to sign any, if you wish. Um, but can we, before we leave, just thank our two speakers, Judy and Richard, for their contributions. Thank you again, and good night.